You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 23rd of September 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Coming up today... Part of the reason he's been there for so long is because he is able to say, you know, this state is only possible with me as the leader. This state only exists because I am here. My guests Yasmin Abdul-Majid and Robin Lustig will discuss some of the day's biggest stories across the Middle East, including what's next in Israel for Benjamin Netanyahu after a block of Arab parties endorsed his rival, Benny Gantz. Plus, we'll discuss the latest developments in the conflict between Saudi Arabia and Iran and look at Egypt's new youthful protest movement. Plus, there is across the world now a groundswell of people saying, well, I'm, I'm beginning to notice things are not quite what they should be. And I think people are beginning to then get behind this and it's got momentum. We set the scene for the UN Climate Summit and hear the latest opinion from Monocle's editorial floor. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. And welcome to the show. We begin the program by taking a look at the day's big stories with Robin Lustig, broadcaster and author, former presenter of BBC Radio 4's The World Tonight, and Yasmin Abdul-Majid, the writer and broadcaster. We'll start in Israel, where its longest-serving Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, may shortly be clearing his desk. Israel's political parties are presently embarked in the horse trading and cat herding that follows Israeli elections, which invariably necessitate coalition building to assemble a majority in the Knesset. For the first time in a long time, the bloc of Arab parties has endorsed a potential Israeli prime minister, and it is Netanyahu's rival, Benny Gantz. Given that Gantz's previous job was chief of the general staff of the Israel Defence Forces, this seems more than anything like a gleeful seizure of the opportunity to kick Netanyahu while he's down. Um, Robin, President Reuven Rivlin says he still wants a liquid and blue and white unity government. Um, if that can be put together, is Netanyahu done for anyway? Well, I think probably the answer to that is yes, but it's quite a big if. There are are two problems. First of all, uh, there are indications this morning that the Arab bloc is splitting itself. Um, Just before I came in here, I saw a report suggesting that three Arab MPs are refusing to join the rest of their colleagues in endorsing Benny Gantz, which means... This seems an unsurprising development. Indeed, and it (laughs) makes the arithmetic even more complex. The other problem for Mr Netanyahu is that Benny Gantz had made it clear that he won't even discuss a unity government as long as Netanyahu himself is still leader of the Likud party. Uh, And that's a real problem because, A, it makes Netanyahu's political career uh, effectively ended. It also increases the likelihood that he will find himself in court because he is facing the prospect of some quite serious corruption charges. And as long as he's prime minister, he can stave them off, probably. Uh, Once he's out, he can't. Um, Yasmin, has Netanyahu reached that point and... Long-serving political leaders tend to, uh, especially once they've served as long as he has, uh, where they are among the very last people to realise that everybody, possibly up to and including their own theoretical allies, is actually kind of sick of them. Yeah, it's an interesting one for Bibi. I think, I mean, what's interesting as well is that some of the Israeli people that I've talked to about this have said for many, and particularly the older generation, Bibi has, Netanyahu has this almost... Uh, 
magical position or it's sort of like, well, he's corrupt, he's this, he's this, but I won't vote for anyone but him, which is really fascinating contradiction. And I I mean, being sort of Arab and African, I'm not really sure how they square that. Um, But I think looking at the region and looking at people's feelings around him, part of the reason he's been there for so long is because he is able to say, you know, this state is only possible with me as the leader. This state only exists because I am here. And the question of whether or not that has, I mean, given this recent election result and, and Gantz's party taking, the blue and white taking um, the most votes, well, perhaps perhaps this is changing, but I'm not sure. I think you almost have to have this belief that you're invincible in order to be someone that leads for so long. Uh, that, that thing or that aura around Netanyahu that Yasmin describes there, Robin, it's not. It's far from unique to Israel, of course, this idea that for whatever reason, a politician is able to transcend uh, certain reservations that you know, you would think people would have, at least with his loyalists. It is, to, to, to quote Randy Newman, he may be a fool, but he's our fool. Yeah, uh, but uh, I, I think is, Israel has a specific political reality, which is that the overwhelming consideration when people vote is uh, who do they think will make them least insecure? Uh, and I put it that way rather than most secure, because Israel is not going to be secure until they mm. finally resolve the issue with the Palestinians. But Netanyahu, over his very long period in power, has managed to convince them that they are less insecure with him in charge than with anybody else. The reason that Benny Gantz is such a really serious rival for him is that Gantz is a very, very tough military figure with um, an extremely tough security record behind him. And what we've observed actually over several years now in Israel is that Netanyahu increasingly is being challenged from the right, if you like, or from the more extreme uh, pro-settler political groups. He's not been challenged from the left, from what used to be called the peace camp now, ever since uh, what we've come to know as the Second Intifada. So Netanyahu, oddly, in Israeli terms, is by no means the most uh, extreme figure on offer. Uh, yes, but I'll, I'll try uh, to attempt optimism before we move on to other subjects. If, as seems, I think, increasingly likely, Benny Gantz is the next Prime Minister of Israel, he will be the third IDF chief to have held that job after Yitzhak Rabin and Ehud Barak, both of whom made flawed but, I think, serious attempts at mm. forging some kind of agreement with the Palestinians. Is is it possible that, and again, without wishing to disrespect Netanyahu's own not not inconsiderable military record, but is it possible that that's where the likeliest resolution is going to come from? Somebody who understands the reality and has lived the reality of Israel's security position and understands, as Robin says, that in the long term, it is contingent on coming to some kind of arrangement. Yes, I think that there can't be anybody else or there is no other type of person that people would believe... Um, is able to to make some sort of solution happen. That is to say, it has to be someone with an incredibly strong military record. It has to be someone who people will say, well, they know what it's like, so we can follow them. And, I mean, Netanyahu has made it pretty clear that he's not interested in a, a sort of a two-state or a peaceful solution. And so, really, we have to look for some other option. And I do think the fact that at least some of the Arabs are willing to support Gans is an indication that there is some optimism. And I'm not living in the West Bank. So if the if the folks on the ground are willing to have optimism, who am I to say that there isn't any? Yeah, And I, and I think that's a really strong case for... And, and to be honest, even though, yes, Gantz has said, I want to bomb 
you know, Gaza into the Stone Age, which is, you know, a strong statement. <laughs> um, he is also not like anti-settlement and he has offered, you know, this two-state solution as an option. And so I think that hopefully there is some light and we have to believe there is light. Also, he's not Netanyahu. And I yes. Think probably yeah. that, that, <laughs> That's I, always a plus. I, yeah. I think that was that was basically his election. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not that guy. Robin Lustig and Yasmin Abdul-Majid will be back in just a minute with you both. But first, here is Monocle's Daniel Bache with some of the other stories we're following today. Thank you, Andrew. The UK's Civil Aviation Authority is spearheading the largest repatriation of Britons in peacetime, following the collapse of Thomas Cook. Tens of thousands of Britons have been stranded following the last-ditch talks to save the world's oldest travel company failed. The administration of the firm, which dates back to 1841, puts more than 20,000 jobs at risk worldwide. The UK's Prime Minister Boris Johnson has blamed Iran for last weekend's attacks on Saudi Arabian oil facilities. This comes ahead of Johnson's meeting with the Iranian President Hassan Rouhani. Johnson has said he will work with the United States and European allies in an attempt to de-escalate tensions in the Gulf. We'll have more on this story a little bit later. Donald Trump has confirmed he raised the subject of Democratic presidential hopeful Joe Biden in a phone call with Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky. Trump has been accused of putting pressure on Kiev to investigate his potential 2020 rival. Trump has denied those claims. And today's Monocle Minute takes a closer look at Tim Walker's fashion photography, which is on display at London's V&A Museum. Walker rose to prominence in the 1990s with his enchanting images for Vogue and Love magazine. For more, head to monocle.com minute. Those are the day's news headlines. Now back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Daniel. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller here with Yasmin Abdul-Majid and Robin Lustig. Well, let's look elsewhere at the Middle East, specifically at the water separating Saudi Arabia and Iran. Following last week's drone and missile attacks on two major Saudi oil facilities widely blamed on Iran, the United States has announced a smallish beefing up of its military presence in the region. This is not, on the face of it, an unsurprising or indeed unreasonable response, though Iran begs to differ on the latter count. President Hassan Rouhani speaking on the anniversary of the beginning of the calamitous war Iran fought with Iraq in the 1980s, instructed foreign forces in general to stay away. Um, Robin, first of all, are you or indeed anyone buying Iran's denials of involvement in the Saudi attack? They did kind of do it, didn't they? It looks like it. Uh, This was an extremely sophisticated attack with, by all accounts, some pretty sophisticated weaponry. It is unlikely that whoever launched those missiles and guided them to their targets with great skill uh, didn't do so with, let's say, at least substantial Iranian help. To me, Which though, we should stress, because if it was the Houthi rebels in Yemen, as the Houthis have claimed at least, they do, of course, operate with substantial Iranian absolutely help. Absolutely, they do. Um, t- to me, what we're watching is this really very dangerous game in which the Iranians have decided that the only way in which they can resist the pressure that Donald Trump is insisting on putting on them is by these little, let's call them pinpricks. They're now bigger than pinpricks, but these targeted, calibrated attacks just to see how much pain they can exert on America's allies before America does something really stupid. Uh, I regard what's happening as Donald Trump's war. I don't believe any of this would have happened if Trump hadn't decided to rip up the uh, Iran nuclear deal because Barack Obama had negotiated it. And it is the most absurd, most 
Oh, I don't know what the words are, but anyway, the most <laughs> absurd reason for ratcheting up tensions in one of the most tense regions of the world that I can think of. 100%. I mean, I almost don't... You can't blame Iran because they sort of came to the table in good faith and and the US walked away. And so, of course, they're going to have to expect some sort of retaliation. And, I th- and it is, yes, death by a thousand cuts, as it were, but also... I think it's completely reasonable. It's a, a politically reasonable response because there, what other option is there for the Iranians? And and also, where, to what end is all of this? To what end is tearing up the, the, the agreement? To what end is putting all of this extra pressure? Like, I'm not quite sure what folks are working towards. And Donald Trump in particular, I mean, we're quite well aware that he, there is no coherence to his foreign policy. But... I'm not sure how aware he is of the fact that his sort of rhetoric can have an impact in the region in a way that it doesn't have perhaps domestically. Because it, 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 well, I was just going to say it's an absurd thought that a tweet from Donald Trump at six thirty in the morning Washington <laughs> time could result in people being killed. And that's and it's very real. And and that's I think as a as an observer who has some understanding of of the pain of the region, it is so frustrating. Um, to see that people's lives and, and honestly people's lives in the region have always been played with but in this way it's so frivolous um, that you can't help but sort of want to shake the table and say guys come on like simmer down just on that subject though Yasmin and with all due recognition that we, this tension has arisen because of Donald Trump's clearly petulant and weird uh, decision to tear up the agreement just because Barack Obama made the agreement but Robin used the phrase Trump's war, and it's not yet, because what I'm wondering is, I'm not sure how much, if any, credit Trump is due for this, but the Iranians seem to have figured out that Trump, for all his bellicosity, does not seem enthusiastic about war in general. Uh, Famously, in June, I think it was, though, again, we really only have Trump's word for this, um, military action was launched in response to Iran knocking down an American drone, and he called it off once he was informed of what the likely death toll was. Is this just policy incoherence or should we extend him a measure of actual credit on this front? I think the thing to remember about Trump is that the only thing he cares about is his base. And his base is not interested in fighting another foreign war because like the group of people that his base is comprised of, a, major, a large number of them have fought in Afghanistan and Iraq over the last well, you know, number of years. Well, they certainly have friends and family who have. Right, and died. And so there, there is there is no appetite for another war. And so Donald Trump is trying to, I think, make the best out of both worlds domestically to say, yes, I'm a strong, tough man who will protect America, but I'm not going to send extra people to die. But that's his problem. He wants to look strong and tough. And what the Iranians have figured out is if they can keep hitting at his allies and friends and he doesn't retaliate, he stops looking strong and mm. tough. I agree with you that his base do not want another war, but they want a strong president. Yeah. And the Iranians are making him look weak which I think is their purpose. And that, and that does run deep in a certain Absolutely. sector of American conservatism, the, mem- the recollection of being humiliated by Iran, which was not all that long ago. Well, it, I mean, it, it, it was quite a long time ago, Andrew, well, but I mean, some, with, some Americans will with, remember it. I mean, it's within my living memory, and I prefer not to think of myself as that agent, uh, ancient, <laughs> rather. Uh, just finally on this subject, Robin, um, how do you think Ro- Iran's 
you know, plucky underdog messaging actually plays on the world stage? Because we were discussing what other options Iran has. I mean, they could kind of stop just behaving like Iran, couldn't they? Well, yeah. I mean, Iran doesn't have a lot of friends. It has one or two quite important friends, Russia among all, uh, above all. But uh, it's not the most popular uh, kid in the block, and it knows that, and it has very few weapons it can use. Its economy is an absolutely disastrous state. It's got very few allies. It has huge regional interests, which it's very keen to protect, and the only way it can do so is by saying to people, we have the power still to hurt you, and that's what they're going to carry on doing until somehow or other they can get this thing back on the road. OK, well, let's look finally on today's news panel at Egypt. There have been protests all weekend in several cities demanding the resignation of President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. The demonstrations were summoned online by the Egyptian businessman and actor Mohammed Ali, currently in self-imposed exile in Spain. Protests are, to understate the case, wildly discouraged in Egypt, and hundreds of arrests have been reported, along with incidences of tear gassing. Mr Ali has called for an even bigger repeat performance this coming Friday. Um, Yasmin, these protests, very, very far from Arab Spring size, maybe a few thousand in Tahrir Square, maybe a few hundred in Suez and elsewhere. But are they, given the risk you are running when you choose to take to the streets of Sisi's Egypt, are they significant? I think so, definitely. And I think what we're seeing is people testing the waters. It's the little tickle at the back of your throat before, you know, a full-blown um, flu or whatever it might be. I think what's really fascinating is is also the fact that um, this was started by somebody who was outside the country and by somebody who people have decided to pay attention to. And the similarity with the Arab Spring is that, yes, social media has played a big role, but given the fact, and, and I think you talked about it here on the briefing last week, that Egypt has been in a state of deep depression, really, like the psyches of the people. I was there earlier this year. Um, I've got a lot of family who are still there. And people are so, um, when, when you fought a, the, like you fought a revolution time and time again, and after the Rabah Amaska, and, and also to, to, you know, not only discourage, but protests are effectively banned. Um, to have people decide to go out in the streets again and decide to take that risk and, yes, be arrested, but continue to push. I'm really interested in seeing what will happen on Friday because Muhammad Ali has called for a millions march, mm. right? Something similar to what we saw in Sudan over the past few months. And I also think what has happened in Sudan has probably had some some sort of like residual impact on people in Egypt to sort of say, you know what, let's tr- let's try this one more time. What do you think, Robin? Is this potentially the beginning of, I guess, Arab Spring V2? And and that that's not an insignificant factor that Yasmin identifies there. The, the fact that they, if they look next door to Sudan and think if Omar al-Bashir of all people uh, can be unloaded by large-scale public protests who, who did just seem like an absolutely permanent fixture, then anything is possible. One, one of the most interesting things that struck me watching what happened was how young a lot of these demonstrators were. They were children in 2011. Mm-hmm. The Arab uprisings, as I prefer to call them, uh, were before these people had become adults. They don't really remember, first of all, the excitement and enthusiasm, and then the absolute horror in the way in which it all went bad. I mean, Sisi, I I was going to use the word murdered, Sisi's forces Mm. killed hundreds and hundreds, if not more than a thousand protesters on the streets of Cairo in 2013. Uh, 
But these people out on the streets now don't remember yeah. that. Um, I'm, I'm interested that Yasmin says she thinks there is a Sudan connection because I was wondering about that. Let's not also forget Hong Kong. Of course. That, you know, mm. they, the, the courage of the people of Hong Kong is very infectious. Mm. And I think it does, it does lead to people saying, if they can do it, we can do it too. But to answer your question directly, will it lead to a new series of uprisings in the way that we saw in 2011? I don't think so, no. Yasmin, just finally on this, is there anything, if this does become a thing, if he does get large numbers in the streets this coming Friday, is there anything that Western media should have learned about covering events like this that they didn't learn during the Arab Spring? Because what struck me during the Arab Spring, and I wasn't, I was there, I was in Egypt just before it happened, but not afterwards, that I think it's a common failing of media to get drawn to reporting to people who they can get on with and who remind them of themselves. So for a while there, Egypt was getting portrayed as this nation of, you know, hip, educated, middle-class, well-dressed young kids who spoke English. And those people are all there, but they are not even close to being most of Egypt. Yeah. And I think this is the challenge with reporting in regions where English isn't the first language and where actually you've got a huge difference or a huge gap between those who are able to speak English and are Western educated and so on. And the majority of the country, which might be you know, rural, might have, you know, speak in different languages and so on. I think generally, and what Sudan, what Sudan did quite well, I think, was to look to the voices that are amplifying and translating the voices on the ground and to try to not just look for the easy answers because and, and yes it does take a little bit more time and a little bit more work but I think if you have an immediate answer that's probably not always the best answer or that's probably not always the whole truth and it might give you some of the truth but certainly a little bit more digging is helpful. There are two other things about street protests which I think too many reporters forget. First of all you see the people on the streets you don't see the people not on the streets. <laughs> Secondly most revolutions fail. Robin Lustig and Yasmin Abdul-Majid thank you both. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Do stay tuned. The same stories, the same views dominate global news coverage, as do the same angry voices. But The Globalist goes beyond the noise to unpack what's really happening, to find fresh perspectives and considered voices in current affairs, business and much more. The Globalist, live every weekday at 8am Zurich time, 7am London, 2300 in Los Angeles, on Monocle 24 or wherever you get your podcasts. Greta Thunberg has become a global poster girl for her no-nonsense attitude to the climate crisis, most recently seen touring the US speaking in the run-up to the UN Climate Action Summit, which takes place today. She was not alone. Around the world, streets and parks were filled and classrooms emptied by what may be the largest climate protests yet seen. Though they were spectacular, are they really representative of a general surge in public concern? Opinion polls around the world consistently record relative indifference on climate. Well, Chris Smith of Cambridge University's Naked Scientists thinks that might be about to change. In just this week, we've had Professor Sir David King, originally the government's chief scientific officer from the University of Cambridge when he was here, and he has gone on public record and said, I am alarmed by not just the scale, but the rate at which things appear to be moving. But if we take a step back for a minute and we think, well, you're saying people might not say they're overtly concerned about climate change, but maybe there's an underlying latent worry there. About one person in five in the UK smokes. 
Now, if you ask any of those people if they would prefer not to smoke, the vast majority, more like 80% of them, will say, actually, I wish I didn't smoke. If you ask them, do you think smoking's bad for you? 100% will say, well, I've, I've heard that it's not good for my health. No. So then you say to people, well, why don't you stop then? And why did you start in the first place? And it's a bit like high blood pressure in the sense that one of these things that has an invisible effect until the day it causes you a major problem tends to go unnoticed. It tends to be ignored. It tends to be overlooked or pushed onto the back burner. I'll worry about that tomorrow. And usually it takes some kind of cataclysmic crisis for people to then say, right, I actually want to do something about this. And you know, the day they have their heart attack or the day they get a health scare, that's the day they throw the packet of cigarettes in the bin. And I think that what's actually manifesting now is people are beginning to see really tractable, tangible evidence that the climate is on the move. We've seen much greater intensification of storms in various places. We've seen lots of people being left homeless. We've seen very severe droughts in some parts of the world. We've got the worst droughts in Australia, for example, that, that they've ever had. The government's coughed up more money in the last 12 months to compensate farmers for a lack of water than we've ever had. And so there is across the world now a groundswell of people saying, well, I'm, I'm beginning to notice things are not quite what they should be. And I think people are beginning to then gain moment, get behind this and it's got momentum. Chris Smith of Cambridge University's Naked Scientists. This is Monocle's House View. In a moment, the latest opinion from the Monocle Minute. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Now for a review from our editorial floor, where we look to Greece, the hotels of which are being eyed up by a large international investor. Watch out, Greece. The big spenders are swooping in. U.S. private equity behemoth Blackstone, the world's largest real estate owner, is reported to be on the cusp of a 500 million euro investment binge on Greek hotel properties, according to national paper Ekaterini. Its first purchase, part of a hotel chain with a significant island presence, is rumored to be worth almost 200 million euro and will be done by a Luxembourg-based holding company. The management will reportedly stay the same. Greece's hospitality industry has been an appealing investment option for a while, now further boosted by a new right-wing pro-business government. But while the cash injection might sound like good news in the short run, the ultimate aim of private equity is mostly about making maximum profit as quickly as possible, hardly conducive to building a sturdy and sustainable tourism industry that outlasts the current visitor boom and thoughtfully challenges the disruption of apartment-sharing alternatives. Let's hope Greece's hoteliers think carefully before selling off the family silver. That was the voice of Yolin Goffan with words from Monocle's business editor, Venetia Rainey. And that is all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Daniel Bates, researched by Will Higginbotham with reporting from Carlotta Ribello. Our studio managers were David Stevens and Steph Chungu. Coming up at 20 a brand new edition of Monocle on Culture with host Robert Bound, this week reviewing the film Hustlers. Monocle's House View returns at 1800 London time tomorrow. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>